It's wonderful to see you all. I see you all were able to find a seat and a parking space. Well, it's my honor to be with you here today, and I'm really excited to be going on a mission trip to Guatemala tomorrow with my wonderful friends. Um, today we're talking about, the message is entitled, You're Invited. And 12 years ago, I found myself in this church, a pretty broken person, a pretty isolated person, a person who felt a lot of shame, carried a lot of baggage, was very afraid of people, very much with lots of walls built up. And Jesus, through you, invited me to life and fruitfulness and purpose. And I know that each of you has the same story of being invited into the kingdom of God, into fellowship with Christ, into a new life, into a life of freshness and purity and power and purpose. And so today we're going to talk about what Christmas means as an invitation to all of humanity. And right now, as we pray about our lives and where we're going forward, there, you are going to be living invitations to that same relationship. You embody the one who invited us all in you as the living Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so let's embody that. Let's be living invitations for as long as Jesus has us walking on this earth. We are here to open the gates of heaven to everyone we meet. And in particular, those that are marginalized and disenfranchised, those that have been touched by trauma or pain or shame or sin, it doesn't matter. We are to go to the highways and the byways and compel them to come in because the house is not yet full. And so we begin by talking about the incarnation, about Jesus coming to us, Emmanuel, God with us. God came. He isn't hidden. We don't have to search blindly for him. We are bidden to call. We are bidden to come. We are all invited just as we are. And Jesus went to great lengths to invite us all. I don't really know that there's a distance between heaven and earth. I think we inhabit a similar space. There's a veil we can't see through. But the distance that Jesus came through was one of omnipotence and glory and eternal power with the Father. And he became a human being. He condescended to be made a little lower than the angels so that the invitation from the God of eternity would come with a human face and the heart of God would beat flesh and blood just like we have. And so today's message is talking about this invitation. Jesus is called the light of the world and light propels itself into the darkness. Darkness has no power. Darkness has no substance. It can't stand up to the light. When the light enters, it reveals. Light projects and it moves. It travels. It illuminates and it reveals all things. Light is going to draw our gaze. If you want to draw attention to something, you spell it out in lights. Jesus at the very beginning of creation where the Father said, let there be light, that was his invitation to all of creation, to know him, to walk with him, to be complete in him, to have identity and purpose in him. He's the light of the world. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being the radiance of the Father's glory. So I'd like to quote from the chapter 14 of Luke, 15 to 23. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. 
At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything's ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. <clears throat> the first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. God wants his house to be full. His table is laid out. It is bountiful. There's enough for all of humanity. He wishes none to perish. He wants all to have a relationship with him. And he invites us to adoption as sons and daughters. He invites us to salvation. He invites us to eternal life and forgiveness. He's, we're invited to be heirs of all things. We're invited to love, perfect love, among each other with the Father, and even to love ourselves properly, and fellowship, and purpose, and peace. We are invited to everything. The banquet is laid out. Now, there are two ideas that come across in the Bible, this interesting uh, mathematics. In one sense, we're called to be in Christ. It says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. But at the same time, Christ wants to be in us. We are in him, and he is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. So I want to talk a little bit about what this invitation means to us, to come and be in Christ, and at the same time, we invite Christ to be in us. One way we can do that is to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever signed up for, like, uh, Ancestry.com or 23andMe and all those trying to find out your past and who was in your lineage? How many, when you were in elementary school, ever had to do a family tree and tell everybody about it? I remember at the time, we didn't have computer databases, so my family tree was based on hearsay. And most of the hearsay was all the really cool people in my family, some of whom may never have existed. But I remember sitting and listening to people in my class talking about their connection to some five-star general or some royal person from Slovenia. In my family, supposedly we had some lady in waiting, but I don't know what she was waiting for. All I know is that I didn't, I didn't talk about the horse thieves or the drunkards or the or the malcontents, or the embezzlers, because, first of all, you don't talk about those things, do you? We don't want to open the skeletons to our closet. But one thing that's very interesting about the genealogy of Christ, as it's presented in Matthew, is that nothing is held back. Nothing's held back about who was in Jesus genetically in his lineage. We don't just see the heroes of the faith like David and Abraham. We see some, some pain and sin and tragedy, and trauma. So I'd like to talk about this genealogy in the story of five women. Now, one thing that's interesting about this genealogy is oftentimes we just skip over it. How many of you spend a lot of time reading the genealogy? 
Let's do my daily devotional reading name after name that I can't even pronounce. Let's get to the good stuff. I want to see the angel. I want to see the miracle. I want to see the battle. But the genealogy is there for a reason, and it's very interesting what's there. First of all, we have five women listed in Jesus' genealogy, and that was unheard of. Women weren't listed. If you read genealogies in the Bible, it's one guy after the next begatting, one guy after the next begatting, one guy after the next. I mean, there are no female names in there. You wonder how he begat anything because it's just man after man. But the Holy Spirit highlights five women in the genealogy of Jesus that speaks to what it is to be in him, what we're invited to bring to him. And it's a story that's remarkable and full of God's redeeming power. So these five women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Let's start with Tamar. Tamar was the wife of Judah's, two of Judah's sons. Now we talk about Jesus being the Lion of Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And I always think to myself, well, Judah must have been a really great guy. He must, I mean, for him to be the, 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 the name attached to the tribe Jesus came from, he must have been something else. Well, he was something else, pretty rotten something else. And Tamar became a victim of his sinful nature. She was married to two of his sons, and both of them died. And Judah said to her, well, I will promise you my next son when he comes of age. But he never intended to fulfill that promise. He really wanted Tamar to go away and die a widow's death somewhere. And so she was basically banished from the family. But she was determined to be part of the lineage of Judah. She wanted to bear a child through that line. And in desperation, and in really a very desperate act, not one that I would recommend, one that was sinful, she knew that Judah was coming along a certain road, and she sat by the side of the road, adorned as a woman of ill repute, we might say. And when Judah saw her, he took her. And after the act was completed, his payment to her was going to be a goat. But he didn't have a goat with him, so she took some objects from him. She took a signet ring and a staff, a seal and a cord. And when he came back to deliver the goat and to get his things back, she'd left. So he thought he was off scot-free, except he didn't have his items. And then she shows up at the family dinner with child. And Judah shamed her publicly. Judah said, you are a harlot, and you deserve death. And he was going to burn her alive until she removed from her satchel his items. And he knew that the child was his child. And he said to her, you are more righteous than I am. So when we look at the first woman mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, we have a story of great shame. And yet her name is highlighted. It's not hidden. It's not brushed under the carpet. God's not ashamed of anything in our past. He invites us to come to him with our shame. The next woman that we see in the lineage is Rahab. Many of you know Rahab, another woman called a harlot, a sinful woman from a sinful city, one that deserved judgment, and yet, even as a foreign woman in an evil city, she trusted the Lord, and she 
hid the spies, and her family was rescued. And not only was she rescued, but she was brought into the family of God. She accepted the faith of Israel. She became the mother of Boaz. So not only do we have a God that invites us to come with our shame, but he invites us to come with our sin. You could be a wicked person from a wicked city in a wicked profession, and your whole life has been devoted to darkness, and yet God still sees his son born in you generations later. Then we have Ruth, another outsider, another foreigner, married to some children of Israel, and her husband dies, and she's left grief-stricken. And she has one hope, and that is to follow Naomi back to her place and to be a follower of her God and to be part of the faith and the God of Israel. And so we're invited to come with our grief, the widow and the orphan, the widower, the one who's lost everything, whose heart is broken. There's a second chance, and she's brought into the family of God, and she gives birth to Obed. And interestingly, her husband was Boaz, the son of Rahab. Then we have Bathsheba, also mentioned in the lineage. You know, I think a lot more should be said about Bathsheba. We often talk about David's sin against Uriah, his sin against God. Imagine that you were Bathsheba. She was a woman taking a bath. And she was brought to the king. She didn't seduce the king. She didn't come and flirt with the king. She didn't make herself available to the king. She was minding her own business, and she was brought to the palace. If you're a woman in the kingdom of Israel, are you going to say no to the king? Do you have a voice? Do you have a choice? This isn't really discussed much in the Bible, but imagine this is basically assault. And not only that, but she becomes pregnant, and then her husband is killed. I don't know how you process something like that. And then when you give birth to that child, that child that was born out of trauma, and the child dies. And yet, she gives birth to Solomon. She's in our lineage. When we're invited to Christ, we're invited to bring our shame. We're invited to bring our sin. We're invited to bring our grief. And we're invited to bring our trauma. I can't think of a more traumatized person than Bathsheba. And yet, she trusted the Lord, and her very DNA, and the DNA of Rahab, and of Tamar, and of Ruth, with their shame, with their sin, with their trauma, with their grief, all follows down the lineage through the generations and finds themselves in the Lord of all. And then we have Mary. As I said earlier, We have two sides of the coin in our relationship with Jesus. One is that we are to be in him. And in some sense, we see Tamar and Ruth. We see Rahab. We see Bathsheba. They're in him with their shame and their guilt. But we also have Mary. And we see another picture of our destiny with Jesus. And that is he is to be born in us that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and literally lives in you and me in the same way that the infant Jesus was born in her, not in a physical sense, but in the truest literal sense, God with us, God in us. 
we see a picture of our story and the story of each of these five women. We are in Christ. All of our shame, our sin, our grief, and our trauma is in him. And yet it's transformed and it's redeemed and it's used for our testimony. It's used to give hope. It's used to give the rest of the story. Whatever's happened in our life, whatever we've suffered, it's part of our biography. It may be part of our story, but it's not our identity. When we come to Jesus with all that we carry, as dark as it may be, his light shines on it, transforms it, and makes it beautiful to radiate. And then in Mary, we see that the Son of all can dwell in us, be in us, live in us, and empower us. Christ is in you, and we are in him. And how that works, I don't know, but praise the Lord that it does. When we talk about invitations, who were the first invited to this miracle? Last night, Pastor Chris talked about the shepherds in the field, and he mentioned that these were probably the lowest status people in the society. Stinky, smelly, uneducated people. People who weren't welcome in the homes, weren't welcome in the inns. I don't know how far they would get in the temple before they would be pushed away from God's presence. And yet they got an angelic host inviting them personally. That host didn't go to the Pharisees. It didn't go to the rich, the powerful, those with names on the billboards. It didn't go to King Herod. It went to the lowly shepherds in the field and said, I am preaching you the good news. You're the first people in the world to hear this message because you're invited You're precious. Come to me, even in your stink and your rags and your low status. Come to me. Come to the manger. Come meet the Savior of the world. We also see the Magi. Again, outsiders. We have to understand that the Old Testament view of Messiah was he was coming to redeem Israel, to lift Israel up, to vanquish the outsiders, to have Israel rule over all, to give a special place to one people. And yet there's another story there, and that other story is that it's for the world. Who else was invited? There was a star in the sky that stood above Bethlehem, and who saw it? It was a brilliant light of invitation for foreigners from foreign land that would not have been welcomed in Israel. When they came to Israel, the whole city of Jerusalem was terrified. These were outsiders. These were unwelcome people, and yet they were invited. The star took them right to the child where they honored him. How does Jesus' ministry begin? Does it begin in the seat of power? Does it begin among the beautiful people? No. It begins on the margins of Israel, the margins of empire. In fact, in the days that Jesus grew up, Nazareth was probably more Gentile than it was Jewish. It wouldn't make sense that the Messiah would speak first to those on the margins, and yet we find him way up north in Galilee, in Nazareth, in Nazareth, where he could speak to the outsiders, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Roman oppressors, as well as his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith. And it's there that he reads the invitation, the invitation written in Isaiah. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what do we see him do? When he begins his ministry, he is beginning with his invitations. And he says, come and see, come and see. You're bidden to come, come to me. There are no more barriers. And who does he go to? Who are his disciples? Are they the scholars? Are they the well-educated? They're fishermen, uneducated men, sinful men. When Peter first meets Jesus, he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He recognized who Jesus was. And when the king of the universe and all of his purity reaches out his hand, we recognize our sinfulness. He says, I invite you to bring it to me. I invite you to lay it at my feet. I will handle it, and I will make you new. And his first followers were men and women, lots of women too, with broken pasts, with oppressed lives, and he made them new. He touched them to the core of their humanity. Who does he reveal his identity to for the first time? He's got his 12 disciples. He's already performed his miracle at Cana, and yet he's mum about who he is until one day he's wandering through a village on the outskirts of a Samaritan town, and he sits at a well with a Samaritan woman, a woman with a shameful past, a woman with very little status in her community, a woman who may have given up on life and wondered if there was a place for her at all in the kingdom, and Jesus sits down with her, and he utters the words, the words that were offered for us to save all of humanity. She's the first to hear it. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus looked into her eyes with his big brown eyes, knowing her history. And he tells her the words that only months later, maybe years later, people, Peter would know by the Holy Spirit. And he says, Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am him. I am he. I invite you. You are valuable. You are precious. Your past doesn't matter. I hold the future in your hands. The future for you and your village and for the world. Come to the banquet. It's laid out for you. What about the garrison demoniac? Jesus has just got done doing some miracles on one side of the, of the Sea of Galilee to a people whose hearts are cold and all they want is some bread to fill their stomachs. They want the gift and not the giver. And Jesus sends his disciples across the ocean, across the Sea of Galilee. And that's when he walks to them through the night and gets in the boat and the storm is coming. And he goes to the other shore and who does he find? He finds a Gentile who are already rejected by the Jews, who is filled with demons rejected by his community, living in the tombs as if dead, injuring himself, having to be chained and bound. And Jesus sets him free and leaves him there as a witness. A witness to who? The other Gentiles about what God has for all of humanity. Jesus crossed the sea for one person. He had no other business to attend to. We don't find him over there reasoning in the synagogues. There probably weren't any. Because we know these were Gentiles tending their pigs. If you didn't know that, Jews didn't tend a lot of pigs. They stayed away from those guys. He went for one demon-possessed, broken, shunned, reject Gentile to give him life and to make him a witness 
to those around him. That's the Jesus we serve. Everyone's invited. No one is left. We have the woman with the issue of blood. The whole idea of being unclean. When Jesus touched a person, rather than their uncleanness coming on to him, he gives his cleanliness to you. It's a great exchange. All of our filthy rags, all of our brokenness, all of our uncleanness, when we reach out to him and we touch the hem of his garment, it goes out of us. Jesus deals with it. It's gone forever. And we receive righteousness and healing. He said, I found virtue come out of me. When you reach for the hem of his garment, virtue comes into you. He changes you. There is nothing unclean when the Savior puts his hand to it. We see the same thing with the lepers. We see the same thing with the blind. We have blind Bartimaeus sitting on the road, calling out to Jesus, help me, help me. And what were people doing? No, no, don't bother with Jesus. Leave him alone. He's too important for you. But Jesus said, no, what do you want? I want to see. And he touched him, and he could see. He was invited from a dusty, hot road where he lived his life begging for scraps, and he got a banquet, and he got a touch of the Savior, and his life was changed. The centurion's servant. Again, we have Gentiles. We have Gentiles who are considered rejected. Jesus said, I'm here to preach to the children of Israel. And yet time and time and time again, he goes out of his way to touch whosoever, wheresoever, whatever their status, whatever their nationality. He was there for them, intensely present for them. He came as the light of the world, but he came as the light of your heart and your lives and my life. He has time for each one of us individually, no matter what baggage we carry into the mix. He wants to set it all new. We have the story of the Syrophoenician woman, another Gentile. You know, this is a story that's much, much maligned when we talk about the way it's taught in some seminaries. If we look at the map up here, we see Galilee down by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples went up to Tyre. Do you see Tyre way there on the coast up by Syria? I don't know how long it took him to walk there, but it was probably a full day's journey to walk to Tyre. You remember the story? He and his disciples are eating dinner, and a woman comes, and her daughter is demon-possessed. And he says, Master, please, please touch my daughter, deliver my daughter. And theologians will often use this example to say that Jesus was a racist, that he had to develop his tolerance for others, and that this was an opportunity for him to learn something. Well, that's rubbish. Jesus went there specifically for this woman. If we read the story, he didn't do anything there. He walked a day to Tyre to encounter this woman, and the very next day he leaves. She says to him, give me, deliver my daughter. And Jesus says, you know, why should the master give the children's bread to the dogs? Now, was Jesus calling her a dog? Let's use our brains here. Jesus was letting her show her faith. He was letting her light shine. He was opening up the eyes of his disciples, who may have been racist, to see that God is working in the lives of anyone who is open to him, anyone who would call his name, anyone who would seek him. Jesus will reject none. I will in no wise cast you out. 
And when she spoke and she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. He allowed, he tested her. He allowed her to show who she was as a picture for his disciples to say, I came for her, this precious one, who I've not even seen greater faith in Israel. And he healed and delivered her. And then what did he do? He left the next day. He'll cross an ocean for one person. He'll walk to Tyre for one person. And I will tell you, he's chased every one of us down. He's coming to your heart because he knows your desperation and he knows your need and he wants to satisfy it. No matter what you've carried, no matter what you've suffered, he's waiting with his hand to make us clean. Tax collectors, sinners. I mean, talk about the ultimate invitation. I don't know what Zacchaeus was thinking climbing up that tree. I don't know if he wanted to be seen or he was trying, he was afraid of the crowds or he just was too short to see over everybody. But what we do know is that Jesus said, hey, Zach, I'm coming to your house. He didn't wait to be invited because Jesus is the inviter. He's the initiator. We come to God through his provenient grace, and no matter where we find ourselves, whether we're all up a tree at some point, Jesus has looked us in the eye and says, I'm dining with you. Just get down from that tree. And when we sit in his presence, we're changed. I have no idea what Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about sitting at that dinner. But simply being in his presence, salvation came and his heart was changed. And Jesus didn't care about the rumors. He didn't care what people thought of him having dinner with a tax collector. Because that tax collector mattered as much to him as anyone else. The same thing with the sinful woman. Jesus is invited to the home of a a very prestigious man, a man who doesn't bother to wash his feet, a man who doesn't bother to welcome him properly. And yet this woman is compelled because she was invited. I don't know how she came across Jesus. I don't know whether she saw him speaking somewhere or the Holy Spirit just pricked her heart and said, this is your chance. You're invited to come. Can you imagine the fear she probably had, not just to approach Jesus, but to walk into the house of a man that would never allow her in, that would look down his nose at her and say, you're not welcome, you're barred. She forced the doors open and stood before Jesus, fell at his feet and wept. And Jesus received her. And I don't know what her life was like after that, but it was changed. I have no idea what the rich man of the house, how he was touched by it. He may have been offended Jesus does offend us sometimes, sometimes by who he chooses. I have people in my life that know how I used to live, that look at me now and think, don't even pretend. I know who you were. Who cares? I know who I am. Do you know who you are? Do you know what God's done for you? Do you know what he's invited you to? How precious you are? And not only those sitting in this room, but how precious everyone is and the highways and the byways. We're to go and compel them, compel them to come. The invitation is open to everyone. And then we find, it's very interesting in the Gospel of John, the moment when he knew his time for the cross had arrived. I'm going to read this to you. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. 
Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. And Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? You know, if you're sitting in the temple and someone says, hey, we got some Greeks that want to talk to you, my response would be, hey, send them over. What do they want? No. Jesus, by the discernment of the Holy Spirit, knew my mission has reached the world. I've accomplished what I was here to do. Now it's not only those of the children of Israel, but it's those outside that have heard the invitation and are coming because they want to see Jesus. And it was that moment that he turned his face to the cross. And the ultimate invitation was wrapped in a body. And it was written in blood. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. He bled, he sweated, he was rejected, he was spit upon, and that was the invitation to the world, to draw all to him. But the invitation doesn't start there. Jesus is born again, he's lifted up, he's resurrected on the third day. The church is born, and he truly comes to dwell in each one of us. He lives in us. He is born in us. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world that will cast out every shadow, that will seek every dark corner, that will penetrate the darkness. And then he turns to us and says, you are the light of the world. It is now our job to be that light, that brilliant radiance of God that invites and calls everyone to him. We are living invitations. Jesus said we would do even greater works. What sea are we willing to cross? What sinner are we willing to embrace? What rejected person are we willing to sit with and weep with and listen to and care about? There are people who are marginalized, disenfranchised, without power, full of shame, guilt, and trauma. And we are the invitation. We are the one to go. We are the one to be proactive. There are hearts being prepared right now. And I will tell you that the most fruitful ministry happens when we don't necessarily go to the beautiful people. We don't want to go to the people that are going to be the best contributors to the church with the biggest bank accounts, with the most gifts. We want to go to the poor and the broken and to let God transform them into miracles and trophies of his grace. Because that witness is so dramatic. That testimony is so undeniable. It's the world-changing invitation. And so I just want to charge us all to remember that as if we have been invited, we are to invite. And there is no one that you lock eyes with, as we hear again and again from our wonderful pastor, that Jesus didn't die for and is not on the guest list. And you each know people that need to hear that. And the Holy Spirit can do the rest of the work. So again, just a reminder in Luke 14, And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them that they may come in, because God wants his house to be full. And I would say as a prayer, Lord, send us to people that nobody else cares about, that nobody else wants to dine with, that nobody else wants to be seen with, 
that nobody else has an expectation that that life has a purpose or matters, and we go to them and we present them the invitation and let God do the miracle. I was that person that no one wanted to do with, anything to do with. I was the one that lived in shame. And there are people in this congregation today that were a living invitation to me. And I thank God for that. And we owe that to others. So who are the poor and the lame and the broken hearted among us? Go to them. Love them. Burst the doors down to their heart. Knock with Jesus on the door. And be that invitation for that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your invitation. We thank you that you, that you have everyone on your heart, that there's no one that's left out, that there's no one too unlovely to love, there's no one too sinful to be righteous, there's no one whose sins are so much they aren't covered. Father, give us hearts of compassion. Give us your heart, not our own heart that that perceives men in different ways based on how they look or their status. Help us to see them with your eyes as valuable, as precious, as worthy, and invite them to bring their shame and their sin and their grief and their trauma, that all of that can be brought to him, be put into him, that he may dwell in them. Father, give us a burden. The days are short. Our task is clear. Help us to be lights in this world, to shine in every dark corner, to illuminate every deception, and to reveal your love, your light, your beauty, and your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.